You're listening to The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. We're operating under slightly different conditions today in that we can't be in the studio due to the impact of COVID-19. But that won't stop us. We'd planned to do this special episode on foot of International Women's Day, but better late than never. Today, we're discussing the Magdalene Heritage and Waterford Memories projects, which together comprise a very important piece of work that is ongoing in Waterford Institute of Technology. This project aims to establish the complicity of the Irish state in abuses that took place in Magdalene laundries throughout Ireland and to document survivors' narratives about their time in the laundries. Dr Jennifer O'Mahony and Dr Kate McCarthy have developed the wonderful Waterford Memories website and recently launched a resource called Exploring Waterford's Magdalene Heritage, an activity and resource pack, a set of cultural and heritage-informed educational resources focused on the social history, cultural and built heritage of Waterford's former Magdalene Laundry and Industrial School. The 60-page resource pack incorporates best practice across multiple domains in education, history, psychology, arts and digital humanities even, and addresses many important themes such as human rights and social change via the case study of Waterford's Magdalene Laundry. So I'll start with you, Jennifer. Thanks for starters for for joining me um, across our Zoom connection here. So you're a lecturer in psychology at WIT. And so this link, I suppose, might not seem immediately obvious. But one of our campuses, one of our WIT campuses, uh, which we know as as College Street, used to be a Magdalene Laundry called the Good Shepherd. So I just want you to tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved with this and also how the link between psychology and advocacy is created through your work. Um, you can tell us a little bit about the resource pack as well, if, you've, if you remember all three of those strands of questions that I'm throwing at you right now. Okay, I'll do my best to uh, not get too off track here and start, uh, start doing a universal lecture. Um, so my initial involvement with any of the Magdalene survivors was quite accidental. Um, it was based on other work I was doing with um, survivor memory and particularly trauma memory, which was my research background um, before moving into researching the laundries. And I met two women initially, um, as I said, accidentally along this other work, and they had told me about their time in the Good Shepherds and in the Magdalene Laundry. And this sort of coincided then very quickly with the release of the McAleese report in 2013. And the McAleese report was the government investigation to establish the state involvement of the laundries. So it found that, yes, the state was involved and the state was complicit, um, but in quite a limited way. The report also made a point of stating that they did not try to investigate the living conditions of the laundry. Um, They stated that it was not within their remit to to really report on the experiences, the voices of the survivors and so on. So obviously this was um, heavily criticized by survivor organizations at the time. And it was really a point of me becoming much more aware that the building I was working in, um, you know, the the history of it, um, that it really, you know, was involved in the incarceration of these women for so long, but yet there was no marked response at all to the experiences of these women. So initially, the Water Memories Project was simply just about documenting the stories of the women that had said to me they wanted to tell their stories and they wanted them to be disseminated publicly. And this was the most public way I could think of doing it, was to essentially create a website and platform their stories. And it really just has grown exponentially, really, in the sort of six and a half years since then. And 
to me, that just points to that, you know, we really haven't even gotten close to examining the complexity of what has occurred. Um, you know, we're talking about well in excess of 100 years of these institutions. So, you know, the, the educational pack was about responding to that complexity and in particular responding to survivors who have repeatedly told Kate and I, as well as Justice for Magdalene's and other survivor groups, that you know, one of the, the main things that they would like to see is an educational response to their experiences. So we designed the pack in light of trying to establish really a grounding. It, it's really about asking questions rather than answering them. Unfortunately, we, we absolutely don't have the answers to the complexity of these stories. And you mentioned there a little bit about the advocacy work. So I see advocacy, particularly as a psychologist, from two avenues. One is the work that we would do as professionals, um, having some impact on, on advocacy on behalf of the survivors, as well as helping them engage in their own advocacy work, which I think is much more important. So a lot of times you have survivors, whether um, they're survivors of industrial schools, men and women, or women that are survivors of Magdalene laundries or mother and baby homes, that really want to be able to get their stories across and they're not 100% sure how to do that. And I see our role as really being about encouraging and facilitating what they want to happen rather than us doing the work. Um, so I think advocacy can be a double-edged sword. Um, I think as professionals, we have to be very, very careful that our work is not speaking for other people. It's speaking with them or, you know, amplifying their voice. So that's really where I would see the, the role of advocacy there. Can I just check, actually, is this resource pack to go into secondary schools, Jennifer? So it's available online and it's downloadable by members of the public as well as secondary school students. So even though we've targeted sort of transitional year, um, it we do see this as having a much broader remit than that. So at the moment, the reason we've we've targeted transition year in particular is based on conversation with, you know, teachers and um other, uh, you know, professionals to do with education. This is really where we see that students would have time to be able to engage with the educational materials and they're quite extensive. So we don't expect necessarily that somebody's going to complete the pack from beginning to end, but they may actually have the, the time to do it in transition year. We would hope, obviously, that the Magdalene Laundries, the industrial schools, um, the wider institutions would appear on the history curriculum, whether it's, you know, um, something that's more to do with civics and society. So we look at it from the current lens of where we are today, whether we look at it from a historical lens. But at the moment, the, the laundries do not appear um, in any concrete way on the leaving search. So this is sort of the transition period for us is that we would like to see teachers engage with the material and students engage with the material, even if it's not necessarily being tested on a leaving cert or on a junior cert. And this is something that we will be working on for the next couple of years. You know, it will take a very long time for a curriculum to change. And we, we do hope that this is one step towards this becoming more of an official educational narrative rather than a choice for a student or a teacher to engage with. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, when you think about it in that way, that it's it's essentially 
not being recorded in our, you know, official annals of, of what students are, are engaging with. Um, Kate, can I come to you next, actually, because you're involved. I mean, your area is theatre studies primarily. So I just wanted to know how you saw theatre studies as being important in preserving the memory of what happened in The Good Shepherd. And talk to me a little bit as well about the When Silence Falls part of the project that happened in October 2016. I was at that event, but it was so moving. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And again, how, how you came to be involved in this. So theatre as a discipline at its core this has long been a discipline that investigates cultural issues or brings awareness to cultural issues and explores socio-political concerns. So that in terms of what the discipline can offer, we thought it could be a very rich connection between psychology, theatre, history, heritage, etc. Uh, my own background is in theatre, yes, but also it has a very strong education focus. So my PhD research was in drama and theatre education and the importance of the art form in in kind of delivering a message that the art form has to be it has to be moving the aesthetics have to be right uh it has to connect with an audience in different levels uh so when we were designing the the initial steps into how we might think about commemorating the history of the building in which we were teaching the college street campus uh we designed a project called When Silence Falls, and this was supported by the Irish Research Council in 2016. And that project consisted of, uh, um, it was multidisciplinary. So I worked uh, with Anya Phillips, who is a performance artist, and we worked together with visual arts students and our theatre study students. So the theatre study students in the programme take a lot of different kind of practical modules. And one of the modules they take is called uh, site specific theatre or site specific performance. So we had we were able to embed this research work within the curriculum, which is what Jennifer and I um, and many others of, of our colleagues on the arts programme are, are doing all the time. So that your curriculum is, your curriculum is informed by your practice um, and your research and then the research is informed again by that. So this event was multidisciplinary. We had these performances that I worked with, with the students. Uh, there were survivor narratives playing throughout. It was a day long event. There were installations from artists. Uh, we also had uh, documentaries in the chapel. We also had talks. So for example, from uh, Mary Steed, who would be uh, a really important activist in this area. Uh, and we invited the public just to come and walk the space uh, and on their journey there wasn't just a prescribed journey if you remember Jenny that you could find your own way through the space and that was really important because we were working with the the student performances we were working through live art so it wasn't as was what you might normally expect in a drama or theatre show so it wasn't a mimetic representation the students weren't taking on the characters of, of women who would survive these places. Instead, they were responding much more conceptually. So the student work was informed by survivor testimony, by archi archival work, by spending time in the space and feeling the effect uh, on their bodies. Um, so they were creating these very time-bound rituals in specific spaces. And the audience arrived and we had between 400 and 500 people engaging with that work on the day um, 
and also uh, we had separately in the industrial side school the former industrial school and um, which is where the education department is now situated there were counseling services available you know so we were really aware that although this is history it is not in the past we are dealing with this is the current lives of people aunts sisters etc so you have to be it's it's difficult to have these conversations and we were very cognizant of the ethics and I suppose I learned a lot from from Jennifer in that from psychology as well as bringing the ethics of performance that we would think about normally. And you yourself performed on the day how did you find it? Um, I performed a piece called Out of Step um, so for people who know the the college campus and um, this I performed for two hours along the very long corridor that leads you from um, one side of the building to the other. And we had learned, so one of the tasks that we did with the students was we asked different people to take us on the tour of the building. So uh, Larry Condon, who is the technician in art and design, um, he had been at the building when WIT or the RTC had first um, moved in there so he was had this he took us on this kind of memory walk and one of the things he remembered was this all these doors he remembered he had this huge bunch of keys and he was always searching for which key opened the door so there used to be a door about three quarters of the way down that corridor that divided the laundry from the industrial school now that door no longer exists but I was really interested in exploring that space because of course women and children were excluded from having any connections so my performance moved up and down that corridor and when I got to that divide I took off my shoes so I was barefoot in the industrial side trying to kind of get at the metaphor of you know childhood innocence um and I also repeated um for that two hours article 41.2 of the constitution which is the article that talks about women's place in the home. So trying to bring out the ironies of the free state and the constitution and how it excluded women, even though they were interested in, in, in women's, the symbolism of women in the home and women for the common good. Well, that brings me nicely actually onto my next question, because the theme of International Women's Day this year was an equal world is an enabled world. Um, but when people talk about Ireland's past and this shameful chapter in Ireland's history. I mean, the lack of equality that women suffered in the laundries was terrible. It was, you know, shocking um, to many people now, I suppose. Um, So how important was it for both of you to be involved in something that enabled those women to voice their experiences? I might come to you first, Jennifer. Um, Just talk to me a little bit about the power of the stories that you heard and maybe how you handled that too. I mean, the power of stories is something that's hugely important. It has the ability to change the way we think about a topic. So what impact did those stories have on you, first of all, and, and how important were they in, in your work? So for me, storytelling has always been focal to my own interests as well as my professional interests. Um, I've been studying narrative psychology for as long as I've been qualified, I suppose, as a psychologist. And core to narrative psychology is 
the belief and the acceptance, I suppose, that narrative is fundamental to everything that we do as humans. Um, quite literally how our cognitions are organized from the time we're born into schemas um, in response to stories that our parents tell us and so on. So literally narrative gives us access to the structures of how somebody thinks and that's fundamental to counseling work for instance um it also dominates our discourse how we make ourselves understood and how we can understand other people so if we are poor communicators it's almost always the case that our ability to tell a story our ability to construct a narrative is affected in some way shape or form and it also means that people won't respond to us the way we want them to respond or our story doesn't convey what we want it to convey so on the other hand people who are very good storytellers often will find that people respond to them in a much more constructive way so it's it also frames how we organize our own experiences and how then we're going to organize action based on those experiences. So in trauma experience, we often don't have a story that's ready to go. We don't have an access point because trauma interrupts the stories we've been telling ourselves for a very long time. So if you exist in a relatively safe world, in a world that's quite predictable, that has boundaries that are expected, and you experience trauma, it interrupts all of that safety. It interrupts all of those stories you've heard and been telling for a long time. On the other hand, we've heard stories from some of the women where their entire lives are trauma story, trauma story, trauma story. And I find then when I talk to them in their 60s, 70s and 80s, they find it really hard to frame their childhood and to frame their adolescence and, and to tell stories about their past. So they end up drawing on typical sort of survivor stories or survivor narratives um, that have been studied by researchers for years and years and years. This could be in English, this could be in psychology, um, you know, it can be literally in a published book, an oral story, but we have to use devices to make ourselves understood. So what I've been looking at is how does that work but limit the ability for survivors to move past or to deal with their experiences? So on the one hand, using a sort of victimology narrative really works because it creates um, a sort of a method of being understood. It creates a group of, you know, what is a Magdalene survivor? So that when these women will appear in the media or tell their story, there's, there's an ability for the public to understand and to, to, to garnish interest in what they're saying. The downside is, is that they lose a good chunk of individuality with the term Magdalene survivor. Because now we have a stereotype of what the Magdalene survivor is supposed to look like, what her story is supposed to sound like. And that can be extremely limiting because for some of the women, they will say, I, I didn't have the physical abuse story, but I have the emotional abuse story. Other women will say, I didn't experience the emotional abuse, I experienced physical abuse. And there's almost this sort of justification that they feel they need to do in their stories. So I, I think that, that that's a real problem because we tend to only hear the stories from the women that are capable of telling them. Um, we, we don't have the stories from the women that are absolutely not able to publicly tell their stories or aren't here to publicly tell their stories. Um, so we always need to be aware that you know, people are allowed to speak about their own version of what happened to them. It's their truth. We are not trying to generalize 
you know, their story of the Magdalene laundries um, from these individual stories. So I see narratives as not only recounting experiences, but, you know, to borrow a term that, you know, Kate might pick up on, they are performative. We perform via the stories that we tell. Um, and they, they give us an opportunity, I suppose, to challenge this sort of oppression that we see. So back to your question about, you know, um, International Women's Day, where we have this kind of continuing stereotyping of women, this continuing oppression of women. Storytelling both reinforces that as well as gives us the, the opportunity to break out of, of that oppression. Um, you know, testimony challenges these narratives and oppression. So this this goes back again to these points of advocacy and so on. Um, that I see us in our roles as professionals, you know, really having an obligation to do this in a meaningful way. You know, we are, when it boils down to it, we are public servants and we are supposed to engage in work for the greater good, for the good of the community. And I think as long as we keep that in mind and, and continue to push those boundaries, both ourselves as well as the groups that we work with or the people that, that are willing to tell their stories to us, um, you know, we will get there. We will chip away bit by bit. That's incredible. I just think that's it's such important work. Um, and you mentioned about the importance of testimony there. Um, and I know you you were in contact with Elizabeth Coppen, who is this 60 year old woman who was born in a mother and baby home. And then she was sent to three different laundries and she's taken a case to the UN's Committee Against Torture. And she does argue that the, the Irish state was, as she says, complicit in her arbitrary detention and mistreatment. Um, and, you know, she, she gives this very moving statement about her conditions, the conditions that she was placed in. And, it, you know, it just sounds like imprisonment. Um, and so, Kate, I know that you mentioned to me that that Elizabeth Coppen um, Skyped into a meeting that you had that involved the stakeholders on this. Um, so, I mean, I presume she was very influential or you were you were moved by her story. Yeah, just to give a little background on this was the the early design of the educational pack. So the pack is funded by um, the Creative Ireland Waterford Fund and the WRT Research Connections Fund. Uh, so the funding that Jennifer and I applied for was to hold a meeting of stakeholders um, that could help us in the initial phases of design. So these people included people with experience of heritage, educationists, teachers, representatives from the History Association of Waterford, survivors, obviously, um, and also students, uh, I think they were first year students in psychology. Um, and we spent uh, a long day together uh, in uh, last semester just thinking about what kind of questions. So there was a lot of brainstorm, brainstorming sessions around the kind of questions that this pack could ask, the kind of resources, how this was best that you, as Jennifer was saying, how do you not kind of homogenize the narrative? How do you provide different ways in for different types of students and groups? Uh, so as part of that, uh, we invite Elizabeth Coppen um, to speak to us. And uh, Jennifer had formally interviewed her as part of the work she has done with um, her oral history, the data collection of those oral histories. So you can listen to many more survivor testimonies if you go to Waterford 
www.memories.com uh, and you can click in there to, to hear more of them. So Elizabeth Skyped in from her home and spoke to us and it was there was some other survivors in the room as well um, and that was really central because it, it reminds you always of these are the voices that are most important in the work and our job is to find the different ways that we can dialogue with that testimony so these the survivors have a voice it's not about giving them a voice it's very much about finding different platforms uh different outputs for that voice and as well it is as suppose we often invite the marginalized group or the oppressed group to help the rest of us understand their situation and that as jennifer has explained can lead to further re-traumatizing so if we can embed some of these testimonies in different ways, perhaps we won't. We can do the work ourselves, you know, and 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 meet them at the point where they've already told their story. Uh, She's incredible, isn't she? To to actually take this case, though, I mean, it's something that takes incredible bravery on her part. You know, it's really after you know living this life and at sixty years of age to to then have to. Um, justify your position on this, which, you know, in a sense, she should never have to do. Um, I, I presume that must be a struggle for her. Yeah, I mean, I think Jennifer is more in contact with her more regularly, but she is a powerful storyteller um, and very convincing. Uh, and also what is, as was going back to this idea of International Women's Day, there is a, a, a matrix of women supporting her as well, you know, her fellow survivors, but also the activists in the JFMR, that's the Justice for Magdalene's Research Group. Uh, Dr. Maeve O'Rourke, you know, is there in terms of legal counsel uh, with some other people. So as was in terms of their story, this, that this chapter began a long time ago for them. So this is just kind of another chapter in that narrative in their journey. Jennifer, do you want to say a little bit about because you know Elizabeth more than, than than I do. Yeah, I think you know you're you're correct that Elizabeth is you know isn't has been very very vocal about telling her story, um, and she has been asked to tell it over and over and over again on a multitude of platforms, and that does wear. It it's difficult, you know, and and um, that was part of the premise of of recording oral histories in general is so that somebody doesn't have to keep telling their story um, and that it's documented in some way. Now, of course, when you take legal proceedings, all of that, you know, uh, disappears and, and you have to tell your story again. So Elizabeth is the ideal person to take a challenge like this, the United Nations, in the sense that she's very confident, she's very stable, um, but has had this extensive institutional abuse story in multiple institutions. So the reality is, unfortunately, is court systems are not kind to survivors and particularly not in Ireland. Um, as, as one other avenue from the Water for Memories project, um, I was involved for two years in a European-wide um, investigation into institutional abuse. And as part of that research, um, myself and Maeve O'Rourke interviewed professionals that have worked on either the Mother and Baby Home Commissions um, with Justice for Magdalene's in 
taking stories for the women that didn't want to go via the, the, the government commission route and so forth. So we interviewed solicitors based in Ireland and the UK about their experiences. And overwhelmingly what came through was the Irish criminal justice system is completely exclusionary to people that don't have money and don't know how to essentially work their way through the complexities of, of the system. So without solicitors who are prepared to do this work pro bono, um, there no one is, is in a position to be able to challenge um, what has happened. If we add to that the um, the sort of indemnity deal that was struck between Minister Michael Woods um, back in the 1990s with the, um, the religious orders in Ireland, which protected the religious orders from any legal challenge going forward. So there's an indemnity against the religious orders in Ireland. So what happened with Elizabeth Coppin's case is there was, there was no opportunity in Ireland to take a case because of the indemnity deal, because of the way our legal system works. We also don't have a class action system. So in the US and the UK, the survivors could band together. They could all take a case. This would spread costs, spread, you know, the, the psychological impact and so forth because they could, they could bear it together. We don't have an avenue for that. So what's happened is Justice Magdalene's, um, you know, took cases to the United Nations and that's what leveraged into the 2013 McAleese report. So we have to remember again that it, it's grassroots responses to these issues. Um, it has not been a top-down response. The government did not decide, you know, we now have moral responsibility, we should do this. It was pressure from a very small group of individuals who were passionate about a topic. And, and that's really where, um, you know, any of this started with, with Justice Magdalene's, the apology from the Taoiseach, et cetera, et cetera. So the legal sort of complexities have meant that Maeve O'Rourke, you know, representing Elizabeth Coppin, have gone back to the United Nations. Um, so this is an absolute landmark case. Um, this is Elizabeth Coppin suing the Irish state. And you know, this, this is unheard of. It has never happened before. It is completely historical. If this case is won, if they find in her favor, um, really what this means for all survivors of institutional abuse around the country is substantial. Um, you know, we really, we really don't know where this is going to go. Um, but the suggestion is, you know, the United Nations Committee Against Torture have found in the favor of submissions that Mavel Rourke has made in the past. Um, overwhelmingly, supported um, the work that Justice Magazine is doing. They have called continually, um, all of this is available online, the UN Rapporteur to Ireland is fully scare. Um, the reports that she has submitted critiquing the Irish government for not following up on the recommendations the UN made after the McAleese report um, have continued to not follow up. So it's it's embarrassing internationally um, as it should be. The, the government has not, has not met their end of what they have promised. Um, and, and this is an extreme version of that. So uh, we will be following it very, very closely. Absolutely. And I think what you're doing is so important because it is, you know, the, I suppose the Irish government have hoped that this is a problem that will go away. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the work that you're doing is really important in, in making sure that that doesn't happen. Can you finally just tell us a little bit about uh, what's next for the project? And I suppose, too, maybe why people should visit the website, because the website has so many resources and it's so interesting. I'll go to you first, Jennifer. OK, so 
the I suppose anything we do going forward is survivor led. Um, it's based on what survivors have told us um, they they want to happen and. There is unfortunately a, a time limit for many of these survivors. You know, there's there's a lot of women that are quite elderly and they really just want to see that someone is responding. So, you know, even the, the small efforts that we can make, that we can demonstrate for them, um, you know, in, in a relatively short space of time, we don't have five years, 10 years to demonstrate to a number of these women that we've heard you, we have responded, here is the response. We will continue to do this in five or 10 years. Um, however, they might not have that time to see the response. So we we will always keep chipping away. And But I think at, the, at its core for us as lecturers is an educational focus. I think that that's where our abilities are. That's what we can respond to. Um, so in the shorter term, the immediate next project, um, we just received Irish Research Council funding to engage with interactive mapping. So a colleague of ours had located, um, I don't know they're difficult to describe, sort of blueprint photographs, if, if that's probably completely incorrect, and there's architects dying a death listening to me right now, um, but we'll go with that for the moment. So um, these maps we want to scan and essentially create, again, online educational resources where they will be click clickable and interactive. So you can click on a room and hear information and um, pieces of testimony from the women and so forth. So initially we have to create these high definition scans it gives a visual blueprint and map of the buildings as well as these layered interactional pieces. So the digital humanities aspect of what we're doing, I can see exponentially growing over the next couple of years. And it's always the premise of engagement from the public. We want actively for the public to engage with what we're doing, um, which is the premise, obviously, of the, the educational uh, modules. And telling the story from as many lenses as possible. The built heritage, you know, as well as, you know, the, the sort of cultural heritage aspects, building in again, artistic responses, performance work, et cetera. The, the more we can do this on a interdisciplinary level, um, the, you know, that, that's really the premise we have there. And Kate, have you more plans for, you know, exploring the, the performative side of it anymore or? Yes, so one of the texts that also has just recently come onto the Leaving Cert curriculum is uh, Patricia Burke Brogan's Eclipsed. So uh, Brogan was actually an, a nun uh, in the in a laundry in Galway, and there's there have been like quite a number of artistic responses to the institutions. But as was hers was the first. There was a reading, a perform, a rehearsed reading of this performance in 1988. Um, and it is set in a laundry so and it brings up many of the things we discussed and it also I suppose adds another avenue which is the concern people adopted people have in terms of accessing their records so this is another part of another layer in the complexity um, uh, that you can investigate through these kind of texts um, so that's certainly one avenue that we are we've uh, we're using that play uh, in plays that change the world in first year. Our second year lyrical theatre students are also studying it this semester. Um, myself and Seamus O'Deloon were talking about perhaps doing a joint project with Irish Theatre Studies, English and Psychology around uh, Unthreel, the Maureen Negrada piece, which is the 1960s. Again, also a text on the Leaving Search, but 
but again it's like the the history and the context around these texts is is hidden you know so part of the role of this pack is trying to just critique the silence you know that is what is what we're trying is is maybe we always can't provide the answers but it's allowing people an opportunity to think about the different factors the interweaving elements and and agents that are working together to enforce silence sometimes even unknown to themselves um so we have lots of different plans uh, to be going forward with which is really wonderful and just to to say as well i mean we are jennifer is right this is survivor-led work and we are indebted to the survivors who've told their stories and who have collaborated with us on projects and the people who came to that stakeholder meeting who have given us feedback so if if people want to get involved you know please go on to the water memories site uh look at the pack we'd like to receive feedback you know that's a really important of the cycle of of developing resources and teaching and look out for ways you can get involved you know the flowers from magdalen events which usually happen in march but have now been moved to to june you know that's a, a national call for people uh to go to gravesides and to to honor the, the lives and the experiences of of women Okay, well, I think that really says it all. Thank you so much to both of you for taking time out from teaching online, minding children and basically trying to navigate the craziness that is our current situation in WIT and across uh, different institutes across the country. Um, So I really appreciate you both joining me and for filling us in on, on this piece of work, which is hugely important and which people really, really need to, to hear about. Thank you so much. Thank <laughs> you.